0: Tom has uh, been on a business trip, and it was Christmas Eve when he came home, and and he had not yet shopped for his wife. Bob, do you have Karen's gift already? Yes, sir. you do. So you're not like Tom. Are you telling the truth, Bob? I have one, and the other one's on the way. Yeah, that's what I thought. Mike, since you chided him, do you have your wife's gift already? Right there. That's what I thought. Well, let me rephrase it. Mike was on a business trip. (laughs) And uh, it was Christmas Eve, and he had not yet purchase Andrea's gift and so he being the conscientious man that he was knew that he better not get home without a gift and decided that he would go to the department store and to his surprise there was about 30 minutes left to shop before they close on Christmas Eve so he was in luck and he went up to the counter I don't know if you've ever been to a department store in the mall and you're inundated with perfume stuff you know what I'm saying I mean right off the bat they're trying to sell you that stuff uh, uh you know And so anyway, so he went up to one of the counter And and asked one of the ladies, said I would like to buy some perfume for my wife And so she showed him a couple of things And he said, what's the price? And the lady said, well this is $100 And this is $125 And this is $150 And uh, Mike looked at that and said No, no, I I think I need something a little cheaper than that So she reached under the counter And brought out a couple other things And put it on the counter and said This was $75, and this is $65, and this is $80 And Scratched his head and said, no, I need something a little bit cheaper than that. So she went under the counter and brought some stuff up and said, now this is 45 this is 35 and this is $40. He said, no, ma'am, you just don't understand. I need something a lot cheaper than that. To which the lady pulled a mirror out from underneath the counter and said, sir, the reflection you see in this mirror is the cheapest thing we have in this store. <laughs> so how much are you going to spend on Andrea's uh, Christmas gift, Mike? hundreds of dollars okay after that you better right what do you see when you look in the mirror do you see a reflection of perfection or imperfection be honest I know some of you you're kind of stuck on yourselves just a little bit and maybe you admire yourself a little bit too long Titus whichever one Either brother is fine. And, uh, you know, (laughs) I digress anyway. So uh, what, what John is doing here in the opening right off the bat as he begins to describe Jesus, he is painting a reflection of the perfect image of Jesus Christ. He wants us to see right off the bat who Jesus is and what he came to do. And the Holy Spirit has inspired him to do so, and right off the bat in his gospel presentation, as he writes out his gospel, he is reflecting, he is revealing this beautiful, this wonderful, this majestic, this awesome person named Jesus Christ. And in our text today, he is inviting us to step out of the dark and into the light as he describes who he is. And I don't know why in the world we keep putting John 1, 1 through 5 up there. That is my fault. We're going to be looking today at verse 14. So if you have your Bible, it's John 1:14. That is, That is something that uh, is my fault. It is nobody else's fault but mine. I do my own PowerPoint. So I don't know what I was thinking. Uh, last Sunday, we saw the same verse. So we're going to go to verse 14 today in John chapter 1, verse 14. And so we're gonna step into the light. We're gonna see three aspects about the light as we step from the darkness into the light. I don't know if you've ever gone into an extremely dark room, but I went into the room a while ago where the orchestra normally plays and to turn off the lights because everybody knows here I'm a stickler for lights, and, and you have to kind of go beyond the wall. Some of you know what I'm talking about, behind the the robes that we don't wear anymore, and stick your hand through there, find the light switch and turn it off. And I did a while ago, and as soon as I do, I don't know if you've been in there when the lights are off. It's pitch, it's pitch black in there. And I hurt my hand trying to find the door. Uh, there's something about darkness. And as soon as we get into a dark room, we, we look for a light switch. And if we don't find a light switch, we get one of our smartphones that has a light on it. And we light it up. Why? Because we want to see what's in the room and want to see where we're going. Because it's dangerous being in the dark, trying to get somewhere unable to see. And John wants his... His readers here who are reading this beautiful gospel he wants them to be able to see and so he's turning the light on and the light as we describe, is none other than Jesus Christ and so as we take a look into the light and step into the light of who Jesus is the first thing that John spells out for us is his greatness take a look at John chapter verse 14 the opening line he says in this verse and the word became flesh and dwelt among men And the Word. We have already defined and described that the Word is simply Jesus Christ. He is the Word. He is the Logos. He is the living Word. And He came to reveal and to fulfill the Word. He became flesh. Notice the miraculous identification of jesus in which he is revealing to us the identity of christ christ became flesh in other words what john is continuing to paint for us as we read this text what he has already said is the pre-existence of christ christ did not begin at his conception in mary's womb to be born he already existed prior to this beautiful thing we call christmas and because he preexisted he became flesh he was with god the father sitting at the right hand of the father in heaven when all of a sudden he was supernaturally, in vitro fertilization, placed in the womb of Mary, and he was born. He became flesh. In other words, Jesus was not only fully man, but he was fully God. He continues to hammer that for those who are reading because he wants them to clearly understand, without mistake, that this Jesus that was born in Bethlehem, wrapped in swaddling clothes, was not just a man. He was God, preexistent before this time. And the Word became flesh. That is a miraculous thing. That is revealing to us the greatness of God only God can become what he created I I don't know about you but I made some chili we're gonna have a staff thing in our house tonight and the pastors and some of the staff are gonna come over I made the chili but I cannot become the chili I can't become it I can create it but I can't become it God the creator in his greatness who pre-existed before time became what he created That is incredible. Only God can become what he created. And so we see the greatness of God displayed for us, and the Word became flesh. What was the motive for him coming? Why did he exhibit this incredible greatness? In order to dwell with us. He dwelt among us. That word, dwelt, is a word meaning tabernacle. And it simply means that he came to dwell with us. And it conveys some of the the understanding of those who would read the Gospel of John a reference back to the tabernacle that they had during the time of Moses. And we're going to see Moses in our text this morning, sort of sort of highlighted a couple of times. And so he's drawing their attention back to the Old Testament, back to Moses, where they had the tabernacle as they are making their way through the wilderness for 40 years on their way to the promised land. They had what they called a tabernacle. And in the tabernacle was a place called the Shekinah Glory, where God himself resided. And this tent was placed in the middle of the camp, and the people camped around it. So he came came to tabernacle among us in other words he placed his tent the tabernacle the presence of god in the center of the camp and the people convened around it he dwelt among us why did christ come what was the motive for god sending jesus so that he could dwell among us so he could be with us and the word became flesh and he dwelt among us that's the motive for his coming so that he could reveal himself and dwell among us now now we see in verse 18 this beautiful illustration in verse 18 that describes to us the motive notice he said no one has ever seen god now wait a minute as we're talking about moses some of us will say you know i remember my old testament sunday school classes or maybe some reading or study that i had that moses i thought he saw god didn't he see a burning bush was that burning bush god or was it a manifestation of god was it God himself or was it just a burning bush? You see, there's an epiphany is what we call. In other words, God is manifesting himself through different things. You can look at the beautiful mountains and say, wow, I see God, but that's not really God. Moses saw the burning bush, but it really wasn't God himself. Jesus was God in the flesh. And so notice he says the only God who was At the Father's side. In other words, this Christ who they saw was one who was equal with God in nature and in character. Jesus was not only fully man, but he was fully God. Equal side by side with God. And he has made him known. Notice, he sent Christ so that he can make himself known. Christ was the revelation of God in the flesh. Why did he send Christ? So that we could, through faith in Jesus... Know God the Father Through God the Son He came to reveal himself To make himself known That's why he came He came so that we might know him Notice in your passage In the scripture If you don't have It's not on the screen In John chapter 21 I want to make a reference here Real quickly to John 21 This whole aspect about Being known, John 21. We see in John 21 this beautiful illustration in John's gospel about how God made himself known through Jesus. Through his resurrection, we know that when Christ died, he was buried, but he rose three days later. And after he rose, he appeared to Mary, didn't he? Uh, Then he appeared to the disciples in the upper room. Thomas wasn't there, so later he appears to Thomas. We know also that he appeared to the two disciples that were on the road to Emmaus. We also know by studying scripture that he appeared uh, on a solo encounter with Simon Peter. And so now the disciples have convened together and, uh, and they're waiting on Christ to appear. But in this passage, for whatever reason, they're impatient. You know, what, oh, you know what I'm talking about, impatient? They get impatient. And so they're impatient with the appearance of Christ. And so as a result of that, they decide to go fishing. And notice as we pick up the text in verse 4, just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore... Notice they had fished all night long and caught absolutely nothing. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you not have any fish? And they answered, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they had not, were not far off from the land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got out of the land, they got onto the land, they saw the charcoal and the fire in place, with fish laid on it, and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled in the net ashore full of large fish. Gives us an interesting number, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not yet torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. Notice they knew it was the Lord. They knew it was him. How did they know it was him? Because he manifested himself to them. He revealed himself to them. And because of this incredible miracle, one of the disciples said, it is the Lord. Later they come to shore and they don't dare ask him, who are you? Why? Because it says they knew that he was the Lord. How did they know it was the Lord? Because they knew him. You know, there are are people that you and I somehow think that we know, right? And then there's some people we really know, right? How many of you would say, I really know a hundred people? I mean, really, really know them well. Anybody? How many do we normally really, really know? Mostly a handful, right? I mean, intimate personal, relatable, secrets, insights, sharing, those kinds of things. We know a lot of people, but do we really know them? See, I'm convinced that there are a lot of people that might claim to know Jesus, but they really don't know him at all. These disciples knew him. And the reason he revealed himself to them is so that they might know him. And he revealed himself to them so they could know him, so they could commune, fellowship. And yes, because they were Baptists, to feast on the shore some wonderful fish. He came to commune with us. In all of his greatness, displaying this beauty of God in the flesh, he came for the sole purpose because he wants you to get to know him. He already knows you. He knows everything there is about you. He knows what you're thinking right now. I don't know if that's scary to you or not, but it should be. He knows you. But the question is, do you know him? You see, I'm convinced that he wants to move beyond just this simple, I met him once, I realized I was a sinner, I realized and recognized that he was the solution to my sin, I prayed this simple prayer, I accepted Christ as my Savior and Lord, I was baptized in the baptistry, and I have walked away, and from that time to now, I have not really taken the time to get to know him intimately and personally. How intimately acquainted are you with him? Do you really know him? I'm convinced that the knowledge of him is a lifetime quest. It's not a one-time experience where you say, Hello, Jesus, I'm, I'm Charles, and oh, okay, I, I trust you, and now you're my Savior, and we walk off, and I've met him, and now I can claim to know him, and, but I don't really, really know him. I spent years trying to know him, and even though I think I know him, I open the Bible, and I come to the Word, and He reveals Himself to me. And there are times when I am blown away by the insight of this beautiful relationship and this fellowship with Him, where He reveals and and sort of sort of peels away this this blindness that I have and reveals this beauty this greatness of a savior named jesus and i just just, i'm just blown away i go wow i've never seen that before i never knew that before about you and so we grow in our understanding and our knowledge of him and he came to shed light on the greatness on his own greatness so that we might come to know the father through the son number two step into the light of his glory Step into the light of his glory. You see, he is not only the culmination or the essence of the greatness of God, but Jesus is also the culmination of the essence of the glory of the Father, of God the Father, sitting and reigning on the throne in heaven. Notice verse 14, the second part of the verse said, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Not only we see his greatness, but there's something else he wants to reveal, and we have seen interesting that John says we have seen we have experienced the glory the revelation the insight the understanding of the beauty of his majesty of his wonder of his glory we have seen who he is and we know that he is God we have seen him they have witnessed him they have personally put their faith and trust in him they have walked with him and lived with him and they have seen who he is and they've seen him in all of his glory not just up in the up in the mountain one time when they saw the radiance of the glory of God but they saw in the aspect of all the miracles that he performed. Why did Jesus do so many miracles? That's the question. Sometimes people ask me, why did he do these miracles? Because he's a show-off? Not necessarily he's a show-off, but to basically reveal uh, the insight of those who saw those miracles, his identity, and to see that he was, in fact, who he claimed to be, he was fully and totally and completely God. We have seen his glory, glory as the one and only the son from the father. Where does he get the glory that we see in him? It's been given to him by God. God gave him his glory. The Spirit glorifies the Son, the Son glorifies the Father, and the Father glorifies the two. They share in their glory, but the glory that he has received, he has received from the Father, and as a result of being his Son, they share in that glory, and they see the glory of one another. In John chapter 2, we see Jesus manifesting right off the bat in John 2, the glory of the Father through the Son. Take your Bible and turn to John chapter 2, verse 1. I'm going to read this text very quickly to make this point. I don't know about you, but I like illustrations that come from the Bible from time to time. We've been doing that the last couple of Sundays. And I just, you know, you could tell little stories and kind of side things and all that. But it's kind of fun to go back in the Bible and take a look at some illustrations and applications from the Bible. And in John chapter 2, verse 1, we see that on the third day, there was a wedding at Canaan of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with the disciples. And when the wine had run out, obviously these were Methodists, they weren't Baptists, but uh, when the wine, (laughs) wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. But his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And now there were six stone water jars, and there was Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they did it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Notice verse 11 this, the first of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory as his disciples believed in him. Why did Jesus manifest his glory in this way and in many other miracles that he did? So that they would believe that he is, in fact, who he claimed to be, God. As he unveils his glory in the many manifestations that you and I see all around us, I mean, isn't it reality? We see many miraculous things. And as we open our eyes and we see these miraculous things, we behold the glory of the Lord. And the reason why he is reflecting his glory as the light is so that we, as we see the beauty of who he is, might believe in him, trust him, put our faith in him, and rest in our confidence in him. But there's a verse in verse 15 that's an interesting verse. And it says in verse 15 that John bore witness about him and cried out, There was he whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. It's interesting in this text that there's this incredible warning, I think, where God is saying to us, I don't share my glory with anyone. John the Baptist, in describing him, understands ranking. If you've ever been in the military, you understand rank. John the Baptist understands his place. He has not come to be the light. He has come to point people to the light. And I believe John helps us understand as, as Jesus is walking by, he points to Jesus. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. He is constantly pointing people to Jesus. Don't shine the spotlight on me. I am reflecting the light on Christ. God understands through Jesus that they do not, the, trin- the Trinity does not share its glory with anyone. We are not in the limelight. We are not in the spotlight. We, are, we, we may be sometimes on the platform and, and we may be center stage, but it's not about us and it never is about us. We may be performing a ministry We may be engaged in a ministry We may be involved in an activity But it's always reflecting the glory Of the Lord Jesus Christ And pointing people to him For he shares his glory with no one The reality is that sometimes I think we sometimes forget that Don't we Why is that We're humans Aren't you human And what do humans like to do It's all about me Look what I've done Look what I'm doing Look what I've become Look what I've achieved Well if the reality is that everything belongs to him And what we have is basically a, a stewardship Will he entrust to us what belongs to him I'm not saying we don't have a responsibility And I'm not saying we don't put forth some effort But even the effort that we put forth The energy and the strength and the, Or the, even the thinking that we put forth Is a gift from him So why then do we boast? If you know anything about where Satan originated from, he originated from heaven, and the reason why he fell from heaven is because of his boasting. He wanted to take the spotlight off of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, and place it on himself. And that is, I think, in essence, sometimes our greatest sin. The tendency to sort of, you know, And take the spotlight off of him and place it on us. Be careful that we do not take the glory from to whom it belongs. and we make sure that we put the spotlight on Christ. Because John the Baptist was very clear in the definition of the purpose for which he came. Which is our purpose as well. Is to point people to Jesus. And put the spotlight on him. Number three, we see his goodness. Step under the light and see his goodness Notice as he concludes this beautiful verse He says in the last part of the verse That he was full of grace and truth That word full is an interesting word It means filled to the rim In other words it is a full to its completeness Meaning that there is there's no more room for any more No more room for any more it's unlike the coffee that i bring my wife every morning as i'm you know i make my coffee downstairs and she gets up after i do and i bring her coffee every morning and if i fill it to the rim i know i'm going to spill it on the way up so i can't fill it to the room to the brim and there's always room maybe for a little bit more but you can't fill it up because you're going to spill it and here it's not that concept here here the concept is that it is filled to the rim to the capacity that there's no room for anymore he is full of grace and truth jesus is in fact the essence of the grace and the truth of god in that he is full to the maximum capacity of grace and truth and because he is filled to that capacity there is no room and no need for anyone else but him he is full of grace and truth The word grace in reference to Jesus simply means that he was acceptable to God. And as a result of that being accepted, he was then entrusted then not only to be truth, but to reveal truth. So Christ is, in essence, the fullness of the grace and the truth of God the Father to you and I. Verse 16 says, though, for whom his fullness... For from, I'm sorry, for from his fullness, we have all received grace and truth. Isn't it great to know that he, because he received grace and truth, now through faith in him, we can receive grace and truth. But what we receive is grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. What does he mean by grace upon grace? There's a lot of conflict and a lot of confusion among commentators about what that means but what i've decided and concluded in short is basically this the grace is a reference back to moses and the old testament grace that was necessary for salvation you see the old testament way of salvation was also by grace because it was a it was a salvation that was based upon a sacrifice uh, the Old Testament salvation was never intended by God through Moses to be a, a works religion, to be, to be pure and to be sinless in order to be saved. It was a sacrificial system in which the people were to understand their sin. They were then to offer a sin sacrifice. That sacrifice then would become sin in their place, die for them, the blood would be spilt, and forgiveness would then result. They were saved by grace. They put their faith and trust in that sin sacrifice, and then by grace they were saved. They're saved by grace. But the Old Testament sacrificial system was done away with because of Christ. Christ now becomes our substitute. He becomes our sacrifice. He is the one who takes upon himself our sin against God. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And now that he has died, he becomes our substitute. And now through faith in him, we have received grace. Ephesians 2 said, for by grace you are saved through faith. And that is not of yourself, but it is the gift of God. Why do we need grace? Because the law That was given through Moses condemned us But through Christ we have grace and truth Jesus said I am the way and the truth And the life And because he fulfilled all the requirements of the law When we put our faith and trust in him We can be forgiven of our sin Because as our ultimate and final and complete sacrifice We can receive grace Unmerited favor from God Not because of what we have done, but because what he did for us on the cross. Turn to John chapter 8. I'm going to close with this last uh, reference here in John chapter 8 about the beautiful grace of Jesus. Interesting in John chapter 8 verse 2. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. And the people came to him. And he sat down and he taught them the scribes and the pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst they said to him teacher this woman has been caught in the act of adultery now the law moses commanded us to stone such a woman so what do you say this they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground and as they continued to ask him he stood up and said to them let him who is with without sin, among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said to him, No one, Lord. And Jesus says to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more interesting we see truth revealed here Jesus is is revealing sin isn't he I mean here we have some self-righteous people who are bringing this woman before Jesus and thinking that they are going to reveal her sin when in the reality everyone there in this scene is a sinner with the exception of Jesus And here we have these men who are somehow exposing this woman, they believe, for her sin. When in the reality, Jesus turns the table on them and flips the coin and says, Hey guys, I want you to look in the mirror and I want you to see your imperfection. For you are accusing her of being a sinner when you yourself are in need of forgiveness because you too are a sinner. That's what truth does when we read it. It it sort of... Causes us to reflect inwardly and help us realize that we do not live up to the letter of the law For all of us have sinned and fallen short of the standard, the requirement of God All of us in here together, equally the same are sinners There's no one in here who is righteous Somebody said, you know, how you, how you doing? I said, I'm doing good I said, no, the Bible says there is none good, no, not one None of us in here really are good, are we? Turn to your neighbor and say, you're not good Looking back the answer Well neither are you Now before we have any fist fights Let's turn to the one who is good And his name is who Jesus Jesus really is the only good one In the, in the scene here And in, in, in the world and In our lives today And we see that the truth Brings what Brings grace Because this lady Obviously put her faith And trust in Jesus Because she calls him Lord When you and I recognize and realize that Jesus is who he claims to be, that he is God in the flesh. God in the flesh. Sent down by God the Father. To walk and to live on this planet. A sinless life. To then take upon himself our sin on the cross and die in our place. That through faith in him, we can be saved from our sin against God. This baby that was wrapped in swaddling clothes placed in a manger nearly 2,000 years ago came because God is great. He reflected and revealed God's glory so that you and I might know his goodness for he is a good God. He is so good in fact that he sent his son to take upon himself your sin against God and die in your place and now through faith in him. We can experience his greatness, we can see his glory and know his goodness. Would you pray with me?